from one of my all-time favorite albums, Revolver, by this really obscure British band called The Beatles. It was released in 1966, and some of you might remember that. <laughs> anyway, um, if you're not familiar with the song, it was written by George Harrison, and he wrote the song out of frustration with the British tax system at the time. And here's what he said. I think this is interesting. And I'm not going to try and say it like he would say it, but tax man was when I first realized that even though we had started making money, we were actually giving most of it away in taxes. And the Beatles' earnings at that time placed them in the top tax bracket in the United Kingdom. The Beatles, get this, were liable for 93% taxes. For real. Because of a super tax as introduced by Harold Wilson's labor government. And George was so angry that he had to write basically an anthem against the tax man. And he even roasts those politicians in the lyrics. I'll let you listen to it on your own at home, but it's pretty snide, pretty cool. The Beatles also stated that's why so many artists, and they named people like the Rolling Stones and David Bowie, would actually move to other countries, specifically to America, so that they could uh, actually keep more of their money. So let me ask you guys a question. How many of you enjoy paying taxes? <laughs> yeah, I know why you're raising your hand, Kevin. Kevin's raising his hand because our very own Lydia McAvoy is the Clay County Collector, and all of you got really nervous just when I said that. She's actually the Clay County uh, Collector of Revenue. And, you know... Lydia actually performs this task that daily that probably is a pretty thankless one, I would imagine. Uh, few people enjoy paying taxes, as we've discovered. And so I'm sure just people run into your office with joy in their hearts, like, hey, here you go. Here's my percentage. The people that do that have lost their minds. But if you've talked to Lydia, and I encourage you to do that afterwards, um, she will tell you that she's on a mission when it comes to this position and her role. Because she wants to redeem the stereotype of tax collectors. And in fact, what we're going to talk about today, the stereotype actually, I believe, comes from what we're about to open up and look at. 
But Lydia, what I appreciate about her, she clearly views this role as a tax collector as an opportunity to be a good light, to be redemptive, to be God's light in a place where, frankly, there probably isn't a lot of hope for some folks or a place that many folks might regard as uh, being filled with negativity. And I'm sure that you've had to deal with a lot of aggression in your job probably, right? Just a, just a wee bit? Yeah. So we may not enjoy paying taxes. That's true. Uh, And the same has been true all the way back into Bible times. But we find Jesus right in the middle of a controversy uh, that would rival any tax story today, including uh, George Harrison. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 27. So after this, meaning the last story that we heard was when the guy was lowered into the house and Jesus healed him. Okay, so after that happened, we don't know how many days between, but after that, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And so, leaving everything behind, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So, the Gospel of Luke calls this guy Levi. Uh, The Gospel of Mark names him Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, he calls him Matthew. And so we'll probably be calling him Matthew Levi most of today. He may have been known by both of those names. And many scholars actually believe that he was a Levite. And if you don't know what the significance of that is, that means that he was of the lineage of the tribe that God had set aside of the Hebrews that were specifically to be the priests, the guys that held all the priestly duties. And I think that it's going to be important here in just a minute. But I'm sure the people of Capernaum probably had a lot of other names for him, right? Like traitor, jerk, and many others that I cannot say here and that would be appropriate to share, right? I'm sure he heard those names often as people paid their taxes, but it was Matthew Levi's job to take people's money away from them, something that's difficult enough, by the way, to do under normal circumstances, but particularly troublesome in these days because of the politics that are involved. So the Jewish people of Galilee, let's just set the scene here. They were ruled by Rome. We know that. They were being oppressed by the Romans, and they were governed by Rome's leader, who or one of his leaders, uh, Herod Antipas. And so the taxes that the Jewish people would pay would directly fund their own suppression. Think about that for just a second. The money that they would pay in tribute, that they were required to pay in tribute, would be used to basically make sure that they stayed under subjugation and suppression. Not only that, but the funds were also used to construct idols or temples to idolatry. And so their taxes would pay for things like the living expenses of every Roman soldier that they saw in their city. Their taxes were paying for that. Their hard-earned money supported the pleasures of Herod's palaces. Their hard-earned money helped to fund everything that the Lord had basically commanded them to be set apart from. And they paid for every reminder that they had blown it. And then the Romans had come in and taken over. Their money went to fund everything that they believed to be in opposition to God and against his people. And here's the thing, they were powerless to stop it. Matthew Levi's job was to collect money from people, and then he would pass that money on to the administration of Herod Antipas, who in turn, passed a generous portion onto Rome. That's how it would work. And so we complain when our tax dollars go to support things that we don't agree with, right? That's one of the biggest complaints that most folks have. It's like, well, you know, 
I'm okay with paying taxes, I guess. I just don't want it to fund warfare. I just don't want it to fund this thing. Well, these guys had even less of a say. Because in addition to collecting taxes for the government, Matthew Levi and others of his day had to collect their own salary as part of their tax collections. And that could amount to extortion at times. And so just to give you an example of this, I actually need two volunteers that like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Kevin, you can be one of them. Who else, who else do we have out here? Yeah, back there. I can't see who I'm pointing at. Duncan. Oh, perfect. This will be great. So here we have Duncan, and he is a citizen of Capernaum. He works hard for his money, right? So here's some denarii for you. No, don't eat them yet. These are, these are your coins, okay? okay? Hold on to those for just a second. And so then we have here our wonderful tax collector, Kevin. Roll reversal right here, okay? So our tax collector, Kevin, here has a boss. And Kevin's boss is Herod Antipas. And so what this means is that Duncan would go to him. And let's say he owes the Romans, Duncan does, one denarii in taxes. Okay, or denarius, I'm sorry. I got to keep this right. So give him one. Okay, there you go. And so that also means because Kevin here is collecting a salary that you actually have to pay double. So whatever you owed Rome, you had to give Kevin one more, right? So let's say that Kevin happens to be a little extra surly this day. Like maybe he didn't get his frappuccino. And so, yeah, that's what would happen. He would take another one. And then let's say Duncan here got lippy with him about paying taxes. He would take two more. So you can see this doesn't exactly seem like a fair system, does it? All right, gentlemen, you can sit down here. Take that. Here, you just you take that. There you go. All right, thank you guys. That was great. So as you can see, this was kind of a nasty business. And depending on how that person was feeling that day, like what, what was on their mind or if they just didn't like you, you were in trouble. And if you disagreed, you were out of luck. There was no system of justice for you. There was nothing that you could do to complain to anyone. Uh, if you did complain, it might actually cost you some more. And uh, here's the other thing, too. This is crazy. And let's say you decided not to pay your taxes or you, for whatever reason, got into it with the tax collector. You didn't pay. He could actually have you thrown in jail until you paid whatever he decided that you would have to pay. Yeah, that's bad. So no one liked the tax collector at this time. In fact, socially, it was much like the leper that we spoke about a few weeks ago where you were kind of ostracized. You were on the outside of uh, basically society. Of course, the leper didn't get to choose their affliction, right? The leper, they had a sickness, and that was the result of their sickness. But in this case, we believe presumably that the tax collector chose their profession. Here's something even crazier. Within Judaism and some of the writings, avoiding the tax collector actually became kind of a mitzvah or a, a good religious deed. And so check, these are more tax facts is what I'm calling them. So the Mishnah, which is the oral traditions or all of the rabbinical writings that have been documented, the Mishnah equates tax collectors with thieves and bandits and prohibits accepting charity from them. The sages disqualified tax collectors from serving as witnesses in a rabbinic court of law because their occupation required them to be dishonest. And then tax collectors often became wealthy at the expense of other Jewish people and were considered to be traitors. So even Jesus acknowledges this. In Matthew 18, 17, he gives his disciples some instruction. He's like, listen, if there's somebody that used to be a believer that's a part of your community and they get involved in sin, I mean, basically they're involved in something that they know is wrong. 
and they won't change. And you've gone to them, and, and he gives very specific uh, instructions on how to do that in loving and you know, in the right way. But he's like, listen, you've given them multiple opportunities for grace. You've come to them over and over again. You went to them first to try and make it right. Then you went to them with other people. Then you took the elders there. And you did everything you could. And still, that person is willfully in sin and being disobedient. At that point, you need to go on with your life without them until they come to their senses. Is basically what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus uses something really interesting when he says it, though. He says, the final straw here is that you treat this person as you would a tax collector, and you move on without them. Even Jesus is acknowledging here their place in society at that time. But here's something even, I think, more compelling. This type of treatment even extended to the families of tax collectors. So if you were fortunate enough as a tax collector to have a spouse or children... Can you imagine being the wife of a tax collector in, in the market trying to get a fair price for something? Or the child of a tax collector uh, just trying to basically make your way through life and go to school. I mean, you can obviously see what that would have been like. There was a social stigma associated with tax, tax collectors, and, and it was impenetrable, okay? There was no changing that. There was no way around it. So when Jesus walks up to this guy, Matthew Levi, and he says, follow me. That meant something. That was a big deal. He does so immediately. And again, this isn't some sort of Obi-Wan Jedi mind trick where Jesus is like, follow me, right? This is not the job you're looking for. No, it's not that, right? We know that. It's not hypnotism or anything. This tax collector knew about Jesus. He knew about Yeshua. He had had exposure to him and to his message through John the Baptist. Everyone in Capernaum was talking about this at this point. A lot of stuff had happened, miracles, all kinds of amazing things. He'd heard his public teachings. He'd heard about the miracle stories. He'd even heard about the miraculous catch of fish, and he probably taxed it, right? He's got to put some sandals on this story. Later, when he has dinner with him, it's weird to think, he might actually be serving him some of the fish that he taxed from the fish. I don't know. I'm just saying. That could be a possibility. But more than anything, Matthew Levi likely didn't have relationships, real relationships with people other than business associates. He may not have even had a family and even connections. And so he'd never even considering, he'd never considered joining Jesus because he never expected that he would be included in Jesus' ministry. Remember the things that we just read. He'd been pushed to the outside. He never thought for one minute that he could be included in something as amazing as this ministry that the Messiah was doing, much less one of his disciples. So here's a man that was likely of priestly lineage, Not only was he collecting taxes for the Romans who occupied the land, but he was taking more from his own people than he was supposed to. He was a man that had turned his back on his nation, on his family, and his people. In the eyes of almost everyone, Matthew was the worst of the worst. But Jesus saw Matthew not for what he was, but for what he could be. You might even say that Jesus saw Matthew's truest potential, knowing that his family came from the priestly line. And here's the thing, this should encourage you today, the same is true for us. Jesus knows 
more of what you and I are capable of than we do. He sees it. He was there when it got placed right there in your heart. He sees what we were made to be, and he calls us to follow him in order to truly realize God's full potential for us. So when the master stopped and invited him, Matthew Levi did not hesitate. And that's an amazing lesson because when he gets called, he's like, okay, this is on, I'm doing this. I'm really doing this. And so to celebrate this change in vocation, Matthew Levi throws this huge party in honor of Jesus. And Jesus comes and he brings along a bunch of his disciples. And here's where we have that. It's in Luke chapter five, starting with verse 29. And Matthew Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So you can imagine the scene, right? Matthew's house is rocking. And I'm, I'm pretty sure his house was probably nice for the day, okay? Probably had the best foods, and it is on, man. People are eating, people are drinking, people are just celebrating, they're dancing. Like anything, the best of the best that could have been offered in that day, I'm sure that Matthew had it. I mean, he was putting it on, right? This is, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. He's like, dude, we are gonna celebrate. This is gonna be on. And so everything is the best of the best. But here's the cool part. You have this moment where he's in this room with all this, this collection of people. And it's very specific to say who was there, right? You have Matthew Levi with all of the rogues gallery of tax collector scoundrels from his previous vocation. And then over here, you have the Pharisees, you have the scribes, you have some of John the Baptist's disciples, and then you have, of course, Jesus' newly formed supergroup that he's putting together. Those guys are there too. They're all mixing it up. And they would sit around tables that were much like this, I guess I don't have the slide, but it was this U-shaped table. And so it would be like this, and you would have guys that would sit all around the outside, and they would actually recline inward like this. And so Jesus, of course, was the center of attention. Ah, there we go, that's exactly, that looks more like Kenny Loggins' band meetings there. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's what it was like, very similar to that. And so it was a very intimate thing, as you can see. And so this was happening with Jesus and with some of his disciples, and with the tax collectors. They were all at the center of the room. Of course, all of these seats have special prominence, too. Depending on where you sat at that table was like where you ranked. And we hear later on in some stories that the disciples and others get into it when they talk about that and where they should be sitting. But Jesus would be the center of attention, whatever was going on here. Meanwhile, on the fringes of the room, not seated at the table, you have the Pharisees who were the best of the best of the best in the eyes of everybody. And their scribes, which were basically uh, students of the law. And then you also had a collection of other disciples that were there. They all wanted to see Jesus. Everybody was there because they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to meet him. They wanted to know what he was about. And all of those guys, the sages, are looking on in disbelief. Because in culture, in this culture, table fellowship was a big deal. When you invited someone to your table, what you were saying is that you had this mutual acceptance of this person. You were saying, listen, you're my friend. I'm your friend. In fact, to the Pharisees, this was outrageous because they had this very strict system of tithing. And we hear about that too. But they had these purity standards that were very, very important to them. 
And so they made sure that anyone that they associated with, but not only that, anyone that they ate with would follow those same stringent guidelines. And so the Pharisees referred to a fellow Pharisee as a haver or a friend. It would be a person that they could sit down and have a meal with safely, so to speak, right? And so they had these exclusive fellowships called haverim. And the reason they had them was so they could ensure these purity standards. It was important to them. So Jesus, in their eyes, was actually considered a haver. And the reason that we know this is because he was constantly being invited by them to meals, which is interesting. But in the estimation of everyone in that culture, tax collectors were sinners and actually topped the list of people who were not allowed in these groups. How could you call yourself a good Jewish man and invite all of these people here to eat with you? You're eating with the enemy. You're sharing a meal with a crowd of thieves and liars and devils. You have devils at your table, Jesus, right? You can imagine the things that these guys were saying. These men are willful sinners, and you're, you just passed them the bread? <laughs> right? It's not hard to imagine. In the minds of these leaders that looked on, not only was Jesus eating with the enemy, which was bad enough, but they were the ones that were paying for this lavish feast. Think about it that way with their blood, their sweat, and their tears. Again, position at that table also reflected status. So it could be that these guys looking in from the outside are like, I should be sitting next to him, not that guy. So now you get a sense why this dinner party was such a big deal. It wasn't like Jesus was just sitting down with a few IRS agents who were just doing their job. It's like he sits in the middle of this joyous occasion. It was a party. He was celebrating with scoundrels from all over the region. But of course, Jesus notices that these conversations are taking place on the fringes of the room. And so you know, because he notices, he's going to say something about it because he's Jesus. And that's what Jesus does, right? So... He notices the conversations, and there's definitely a disconnect between him and his friends, the Pharisees here. And so he overhears what they're saying, and here's his answer to them. Verse 31, Jesus answered saying, listen, guys, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Basically, Jesus equates his mission with medicine. He's like, listen, guys, come on. And actually, Matthew's gospel gives us some additional details to the story because there's a little more here. Matthew says this after that part. He goes in verse 19, um, chapter 9, verse 13. Matthew says, Jesus told them this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is quoting a passage of scripture here that they would have all been very familiar with. It's Hosea 6.6. 6. And Jesus suggests... He's actually, he just went rabbi on him is what he did. He suggests, listen, you guys, Mr. Smarty Pants, Mr. Torah Scholar, go home and study this one. Check this out. You probably know where this is. You probably have a bookmark in this one. Just go check it out. Here's what it says. It's like, if you have a problem with this, I want you to study this passage because uh, your interpretation of it is incorrect. Of course, he says it in one sentence, but that's what he's saying. What is he saying? 
That's what we want to know. What is the big deal with Hosea 6.6, and why would it even apply in this context of eating with sinners and tax collectors? The Pharisees and their objection to what's happening was primarily on the grounds of what is called ceremonial concern, which means that Matthew Levi was a known sinner in their minds. So it could be assumed that the meal that they were eating, for example, that the food hadn't uh, been prepared with the stringent, stringent uh, like qualities that these guys needed, the Pharisaic standards. And by the way, many of those standards were above and beyond what the Torah required. They were extra things that these guys had put on top of it in order to basically build fences around what God had asked them to do. It was likely that the food, the spices, all the different things that were used hadn't been properly tithed. If you look at Matthew 23, 23, you'll see that there are later on in conversations, Jesus mentions this. Every single thing that they had in their house, they tithed off of it. They were very, very specific about it. And then, to top all that, the people that made the food probably aren't qualified to do so. They probably don't meet the purity standards either. But here's the thing. Notice that Jesus doesn't speak against the standards, and I think it's important for us to notice that. What he suggests here is that, listen, guys, there's something that's more important to God. Jesus is saying mercy and compassion for human beings takes precedence over ritual and ceremonial concerns, or to make it a little simpler, the relationship is more important than the ritual. Guys, the relationship with the Father here is more important than the ritual. Our hearts are what matter most to God. And all this other stuff, and I say stuff, I, I mean, all these other things, they're all designed to turn our hearts toward him. That's why we have a standard in Torah. That's why we have all these different things. The goal for those things is to turn our hearts toward him. And so, in other words, guys, our hearts are the most important thing to God, and everything else is a vehicle to direct our hearts towards the Father. So Jesus is telling, listen, guys, this opportunity that we have to reach out to these people that are in need of God, these sinners, this outweighs the dietary concerns. It's cool. But he's also saying something else. It's like, Pharisees, listen, guys, you know better. You're healthy. You know what righteousness is. You already hold the cure. But for sinners and those who do not yet know the Father, life is taxing enough, and they need mercy and compassion. Matthew Levi had walked away and totally turned his back on his people, what he knew to be right, and even what he was made for, which was eventually being a priest or a Levite. And then he meets Jesus. Here's the thing. Tradition states that Matthew Levi is the man that's responsible for writing the gospel of Matthew. Why is that important? It's no wonder that his account is the only one that shows us the grace and mercy at the very end, right? He gives us a glimpse of what Jesus only maybe even extended to him. Maybe just a few people heard that exchange. Guys, Jesus meets us where we are, and he calls us to follow him to our full potential.
in the beginning when God made everything, what did he say about it? Hey, it's good, right? We live in this world that is just consumed with post-apocalyptic gloom and doom, and our culture seems to be obsessed with it. But the truth is, God's creation, guys, is still good. That includes you and me. It doesn't mean that we don't have our share of problems. Namely, we tend to embrace our selfish impulses and we make choices that aren't the ones that God would have for us, right? We sin, which sin is basically a willful decision to do the opposite of what God's asked us to. But the good news is that mercy waits for you. Mercy awaits you. Life is taxing. <laughs> Amen? Life is taxing. It takes it out of you. Even on the best days, it's still hard at times. But all we have to do is turn to him. We have the same opportunity that Matthew Levi did. At this time, I'm going to ask, uh, if you're willing to pray with folks, if you're a leader here in the admin or elder board or just somebody that likes to pray with people, I'm going to have you come forward. Just kind of gather around here, if you would. Maybe spread out around there. Here's the thing, guys. God loves you where you are, not where you should be. He can see where you should be. And I think sometimes we're harder on ourselves than what he's thinking. He just wants us to come to him, but he loves you right where you're at. Perhaps today you're here and you're tired. You're just worn out. You're like, I'm kind of done today. I barely made it here. Stick a fork in me, please. Maybe you're mixed up in sin or you're enslaved to habits that you're tired of. Maybe you're just tired of trying. Maybe you're ready to give up. The only source of abundant life is Jesus, and it's available. He's waiting. He can be your strength no matter what you face. Reach out to him today. Or maybe you're here today and you're doing well by most people's standards. People look at you and they look at your life and you're like, they obviously have it together. They're rocking it. And on the outside, everything looks great, but inside you feel like you're constantly having to keep up with the race or you're barely treading water or people maybe don't even know what's really going on. Matthew was one of the wealthiest men in his community. And by most people's standards, he had everything, and yet he had nothing without Jesus. And he knew that. Nothing of real value. No matter how much we have, it'll never be enough without Jesus. What he wants is your heart. Today's the day that you can give it to him. And maybe you're here today, and you just feel aimless. You feel like you're wandering or drifting or off track. Maybe you feel like you're one of those folks that's just on the fringe of community with no real connection. God made you. 
you're worth everything to him. He hasn't given up on you. He knows better than anyone who you were created to be. And he has a plan. And part of that plan includes the people that he wants to place in your life. Will you accept his invitation today to follow him into that purpose and find out what it is? Because that's exciting. So if God's whispering to your heart about any of these things, or if you have other prayer needs today, we just want to set aside some time for you to bring those things to Jesus. And so that can look a lot of different ways. All of these folks that are up here love you. And anything that you say to them is in confidence if you want prayer. They would be happy to do that. Maybe you just need some time by yourself to pray. These may look like chairs, but now they're altars, which means you can turn, you can pray right here. I think sometimes it's important for us to not just be where we're at in our seats, but to actually take a step. I think that there's a part of that even to our own hearts that signifies that we're serious about what God wants to do in our lives. But it's okay if you want to pray where you're at too. But let's take this time as a community because I think every one of us can relate to one or more of those things. And every one of us, we all have stuff going on. Every one of us has something in our lives that we need help with. And we need help that's supernatural, that's beyond what we can do naturally. We need Jesus. And here's the thing, when Jesus touches something, he transforms it. He does. Sometimes it's not instantaneous, at least it doesn't feel that way, but when Jesus touches something, it's not the same. And all it takes on our part is a humble response to his call to follow him. So don't wait. Let your life be transformed today. As Jeremy plays, come forward when you're ready.